I'm Harrison Cayley. This is The Truth Perspective. Joining me are Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. Corey Schenk. Hello. And Adam Daniels. Hi, everyone. Are you self-aware? Would you consider yourself to be self-aware? Just take a few seconds and ponder that, and then come to the ultimate conclusion that, yes, you are self-aware, because chances are that's what you would answer for yourself, given the opportunity. Apparently, according to research by Tasha Urich, Urich, I guess I should have realized or figured out how to pronounce her name, 95% of people, when asked if they consider themselves self-aware, will answer in the positive, that they are indeed self-aware. But according to said researchers' same research, same findings, only 10 to 15% of people are actually self-aware. This is a similar result, a similar finding as several others, showing that, for instance, when asked if they are, or ask where they place, like above, above average, you know, um, ex, you know, top one percentile, um, or below average, most engineers, for instance, or 95% of engineers, I think that's the, no, 999 out of 1,000 engineers will say that they are above average engineers. Only one will admit to being average. 94% um, of professors will rate themselves as above average, and etc., etc. In addition to that, it is often the people who are least competent that overrate their abilities the most, who actually think they are at the top of their class when they are, in fact, at the bottom. This is the problem of self-awareness. It is something that we think we all have, but that very few actually do have. And that is the subject of Tasha Yurich's book, Insight, The Surprising Truth About How Others See Us, How We See Ourselves, and Why the Answers Matter More Than We Think. This is a book all about self-awareness, like we talked about last year, last week. This is what we're going to be talking about today. It's all about self-awareness, the different types of self-awareness, the ways in which we are unaware but think we are aware, and the techniques to put into practice to actually become self-aware, because it is a learnable skill. So it's a kind of a, like a business self-help book, self book, but um, she even she makes an effort to make it applicable to kind of any life situation. She's actually um, a, an organizational psychologist. She's also a researcher, New York Times bestselling author. You can find some, her stuff online. She's written numerous articles in you know, big publications. She's got TED Talks online. And the book itself is really good. It's only kind of annoying because she calls self-aware people unicorns, but that was really the only annoying thing I found about the book. Um, the information in it is actually very, very interesting, very eye-opening, very insightful, and um, very useful. It's got a lot of things to actually put into practice to, um, you know, to become a little bit more self-aware. Because like I said, chances are you think you're more self-aware than the average person, and chances are you're not. Um, just like practically everyone else. Um, and like I said, people who are self-aware are actually pretty rare. So we're going to be talking about a few of the insights in this book, Insight, and just seeing where things go. So um, maybe I'll start off with one observation just to get into like some of the meat of the book. Just one example. On the cover of the book, there is an endorsement by uh, Chip Heath 
author of The Power of Moments and Switch. And he writes, buy a copy for yourself and buy another to leave anonymously on your boss's desk. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, but um, it is a theme of the book. Um, at various points, because it's kind of like a business book, she talks about CEOs and like the work she does consulting for uh, businesses and big organizations and the, the kind of bosses she's worked with and some of the bad bosses that she's worked with. But it's only at the last chapter where she um, actually gives the advice for dealing with bad bosses or bosses, bosses who are self who don't who aren't very self aware. And one of the points she made, which I think is a good one, is that keeping in mind that eighty five to ninety percent of people aren't very self aware, the chances of you getting a self aware boss are going to be very little, very small. So she talks about the three kind of people, three well, three types of bosses, which are essentially three types of people. And she calls them the the lost cause. So these are the people that are so, uh, they cling to their delusions so strongly that you can't break them no matter what. Like any feedback you give them, they will reject. They'll say it's wrong. They are so convinced of their, their own perception of themselves that um, they are not receptive to receptive to any feedback whatsoever. Second group are the aware but don't care. So these are the people that you point out to them their, you know, character flaws and they'll be like, yeah, I'm like that, but that's the way I want to be, essentially. Like, I know I'm like that and I don't, you know, I, but it's the right way to be. I like that about me. So these would be bosses who are like convinced that like instilling fear into their employees is the most effective way of being a good leader. And then, of course, the third one would be the nudgeables. So these are the people that um, may not be able to see themselves, but are at least nudgeable in terms of you know being given feedback. When given feedback, they actually will want to change and do a better job. They just weren't aware that there was a problem. Now, one of the points she makes that I think is a, a good one. This is what I wanted to start off with: is that uh, you know I've, I've I've heard so many people. Um, that I know talk about their jobs and what a psychopath their their boss is, <laughs> and how they're convinced their their boss is the most evil person like imaginable. And uh, you know he probably you know kills puppy dogs on the weekends and uh, you know is a serial rapist or something. Um, chances are that's incorrect. You know, chances are you're just responding negatively to a person who doesn't have very much self awareness. Like I said, that's going to be like a large percentage of the population. Now, one of the things that really was actually quite moving about this book, I, you know, I found that she tells a lot of stories, right, little, little case studies, and I actually found almost all of the case studies, like, profoundly moving, because there are some people in there that are just, like, total jerks, right? And then comes the moment where they're given the feedback, and then you kind of see the the see their character or what their character could be, you know, what their virtue could be in their response to the feedback, and so she gives some examples of some bosses who, you know, I'm sure most people who had those, who had them as a boss would say, oh, my boss is such a psychopath. I hate that guy. He's such a bad boss. And then it turns out that they really just had no idea how, what, what an effect they were having on their employees. Mm -hmm. They had no idea that they were being such a jerk. And in some cases, all it takes is that, you know, that, well, a one, like one difficult conversation. They may be a little bit resistant at first, but they're like, oh, wow, I'm like that. That's what people think of me. It's like, oh wow, oh, and maybe, oh, and that explains why you know my relationships with my 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 wife and my kids have been going down the tubes lately. And it's like, oh, maybe that's affecting how I 
behave in all these different situations and it's like they actually so, show some insight and then put the effort into change afterwards now um, like I just said not everyone's going to be like that but for me it was just uh, um, a kind of reminder and I think we talked about this last week or maybe the week before all the shows kind of get mixed together in my mind um, a reminder about you know reserving judgment um, keeping an open mind especially when it comes to like um, you know diagnosing someone that is, like <laughs> with a, a severe personality disorder who might not actually have one um, it was yeah it was when we were talking about ponderology when um, um, you know so go back to that show to for a, a similar discussion but yeah I'll just leave it there there are three types Sometimes your your boss may be a jerk, but it's possible that he's just self-aware and that he or she can learn to be self-aware. Maybe not, in which case there are strategies for how to deal with people who are just totally delusional, but there are also things, well, there are things to do in any of those situations, and I'll leave it there. Next. Next. Well, I wanted to comment on uh, that case example, case study, uh, or idea that we'd have people in our lives, bosses, uh, friends, colleagues, that, um, that show very little insight but may have the potential to when being informed of their behavior or, or the way they think or their actions might, because of their character, have the potential to act on uh, the type of feedback. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons she explains uh, for how these things continue to perpetuate in people is a, a phenomenon or a tendency she describes as, um, as mum, the mum effect. Mm -hmm. uh, keeping mum about undesirable messages, which is just basically a tendency for people to not want to deliver the, the bad news or negative information or feedback to somebody um, because naturally it's an uncomfortable process. It's a... You know, we'd much, much rather, for obvious reasons, um, prefer to deliver positive news and good feedback and good news. It's just, it just obviously makes a, a better, uh, more, more feel-good experience. But um, because of that, uh, that tendency to, to, to shy away from delivering uh, negative feedback, um, you could say that we... Uh, we tend to feed into or perpetuate uh, those behaviors and actions and, and uh, thought errors in people uh, who are surrounded by, by not taking that step in, uh, in giving them feedback. So I thought, I thought that was an important kind of um, feature to, to her book. It's, it's that we're, uh, we're relinquishing our responsibility to people in our lives when we don't um, take that that uncomfortable step of giving them feedback where it's necessary. And of course, the other dimension to this is we're not always sure of what, what it is we're seeing. We don't want to hurt feelings. We don't know if the person is even going to be receptive uh, to the, the types of things that we're seeing in them. Um, so naturally, we want to apply all kinds of uh, consideration to that person and where they are and, and whether or not 
some negative feedback is going to be more detrimental than it will be constructive to them. Uh, so those are other issues that she doesn't quite get into, but I think are are worth considering uh, when we feel that uh, someone does merit a little negative feedback. Well, it's not so simple as stepping up to the plate and, and telling them they suck in one form or another. Yeah, I think uh, I'd just like to add that uh, Tasha divides the uh, types of awareness into two fundamental categories where she talks about your internal self-awareness where you know what your own you know passions aspirations and drives and who you are basically as a person you know who you are and then there's the external um, awareness that we're that you guys are just discussing about how other people see you. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was particularly interesting that as she's found and a lot of modern uh, researchers have found, there's really no connection be between the two. Yeah, so no you can be, you can be a total people pleaser. You know, you know what everybody else thinks about you, you know what everybody else wants, but then you have no idea who you are. Mm -hmm. And then you could also be, you know, self-driven and comp and know, uh, exactly who you are and then have no idea how you come across to other people mm -hmm. and so if you if you have that degree of awareness in one or the other of those fields you're still not going to be the um, you're not going to be you know functioning at a very high level you're mm -hmm. still going to be just running into a brick wall and wondering why yeah you know and then blaming you know maybe you're blaming other people or you're blaming yourself because oh I'm such a failure yeah. I don't you know who am I you know? yeah. And she calls those moments, uh, like those insight moments, she's got a few names for them, like for the, the kind of, um, we've called them like alarm clocks or billboards falling on your head, mm -hmm. but uh, she calls them like earthquakes. So an earthquake would be like the, a situation that really like shakes you to your core, like you're told something about yourself that um, is very unpleasant to receive and it kind of really shakes you up. Like to the to the degree where you realize you had no idea who you were, and that's a like that's a personality disintegration. That's a, a like a, a an emotionally negative experience. Like it actually is like physically and emotionally uncomfortable to say the least. And then what are the other ones she she has? Um, she's got a, a couple others. Oh, well, one is just the the aha moment. It's just they just come out of nowhere. It might be something totally mundane, some some action, some behavior that you're doing, or you know, some chance encounter, or even just like some meditative, you know, walk through the forest where you realize something. You're like, oh, you know, I didn't think about it that way before, and you you get a new understanding, a new insight about yourself that isn't um, you know earth shaking or soul shaking. It's just uh, you know a new a new insight. But um, one of the one of the things about those two types of self-awareness, like you said, there's the kind of internal self-awareness that um, about who you are, what your values and um, emotions are. Um, she's got a, a list of like the seven core principles. Um, she calls them, I think, the, the pillars of insight. So those, in, those internal ones are your values, your passions, your aspirations, and your fit. So your fit would be like the environment that you need to be, you know, happy and organized and engaged and all those sorts of things. And then the, the external pillars are the patterns that you have. Those are your consistent ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. And your reactions, so those would be the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that real that reveal your strengths and weaknesses, and your impact. So that's the effect you have on others. Now the point she makes is that it is possible to have a fairly good understanding of those first pillars, those internal 
pillars of like values and um, passions and aspirations on your own, like without much feedback. It helps to have some feedback from others, but you don't need it necessarily. At least, um, you know, some people don't need it. But for the external pillars, you really do need external feedback. And I, I think at various points, she even says that categorically, that, you know, even the people who are self-aware, the only reason they're self-aware is because they get feedback from other people. That, um, it's one of those things that you just can't know on your own. Mm -hmm. And that there was a similar, um, a similar dynamic that goes on that she, that she points out regarding the kind of roadblocks to, to insight. And one of them is, uh, there are certain myths about insight and about the, you know, self-awareness. And one of them would be that the, basically the unconscious mind, like your, the, the, the unconscious things about yourself are mineable basically you can get to the root of them you can you can if you just dig deep enough if you um you know engage in self-analysis or introspection or you go to therapy like a like a depth psychologist or something they can help you get to the bottom of your problems the and and you can come to those insights on your own and she really she points out that really that is a myth that the the unconscious is pretty much totally inaccessible you can't reach it the only way you can get an idea about these sorts of things is just by um again getting observations on the way you behave with others and that it really is useless and in fact more damaging to engage in the kind of navel gazing introspection constantly wondering oh why did i do this why am i like this oh well maybe it's this childhood experience i had and this um you know this happened to me and then oh well, maybe in, you know you can come up with a, a list of reasons why you are the way you are but the research shows that that actually doesn't help at all and in fact makes things worse and that the people who are engaged in the most introspection like that um and rumination so introspection would be like looking for the root causes and rumination is when you're constantly thinking about like the bad things about yourself and your negative personality traits and behaviors and the that ruminators and like people who are really introspective are actually like less self-aware um and less successful and um I, maybe I'll try to find. I have that in my notes somewhere. Um, do you remember what? Okay, yeah, it was chapter five. So, um, well, uh, just, just to comment okay. on that quickly, mm -hmm. Harrison. Uh, you know what? What makes her book so successful? I think um, in in looking at all of these things is that she gives very nuanced answers. So she, so she describes rumination as this kind of negative feedback loop, as we would uh, describe it, uh, where we're just kind of stuck in the question of why. Why did it happen? You know, why is my life like this? It, it, it's kind of uh, steeped or rooted in an emotional identification with uh, the problem. Mm -hmm. um, that in the past. It, in the past, and not looking... Uh, in the present and towards the future as a way to um, to move forward and mm -hmm. to be constructive and to extricate yourself from what seems to be insurmountable problems that we're that we feel stuck in. Uh, so, the way to reframe the uh, approach or or the question is not why did that all occur, not why am I stuck in this behavior or, or my circumstances, but, you know, what can I do right now 
that would make things better. What, uh, what are my future goals now that uh, I can learn something from that experience? What? The word is what? Which is another one that uh, comes with stopping. Uh, it's one of the things that she recommends for stopping ruminations is asking instead of like, you know, why do I feel this way? It's what am I feeling? Mm -hmm. What are my thoughts right now? What's, you know, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. Naming the emotions mm -hmm. involved, giving, giving a name to it instead of being stuck in this nebulous morass of uh, self-pity and, um, and confluence in, uh, in how bad things are. So this is highly constructive. Um, I don't think a lot of the things she mentions uh, are necessarily new to us. I think we've uh, we've seen them in a, in a number of other places, um, but she gives new terminology to the process involved. Mm -hmm. uh, she's very much about the process, being consciously engaged in the process of gaining insight, which is valuable in and of itself. So like one of the things she mentions about the unicorns, these people who have achieved a certain mastery uh, of insight. Who weren't born that way. Um, right. Well, she says for some people it comes very naturally. Uh, but for the people who it hadn't come naturally to, uh, and she gives an interesting example of a military failure with George Washington early on in the book. Um, you know, th there is... There's value in the process of gaining insight mm -hmm. uh, because, it, because it is a conscious process, because it is an active and not a passive thing that we are engaging ourselves in. Um, so one of the things that Yurik says is that in, in writing the book, uh, she has learned more from those people who have had to engage in the process who, for instance, in a particular situation didn't have insight, who, who were stuck in a particular problem, but then gained insight. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that all gives us a bit of hope <laughs> when we feel like we're not necessarily uh, the most insightful, at, at least in some areas in our lives. Yeah, because she says that when she <clears throat> initially engaged in this kind of research, she was looking for all of like basically how to become self-aware. So she looked at the people who were naturally self-aware and the problem with them was that they couldn't describe how they were self-aware. It just came naturally. So she'd be like, well, how do you do this? And they're like, oh, well, I don't know. I just do it. You know, I, I must've just been born with it because it's, it's so natural that they're not even aware of how they're being self-aware. And so it is only the people who have, who started out unaware and learned to be self-aware that, that offered the, the kind of tools and the, the you know the methods to to actually do so. So again, there there are some people that are born just self-aware. You know, they just from a very young age they just seem to have that as a natural function of you know their personality, um, of their consciousness. And then others who, that like the the vast majority who are unaware, and then an uncertain number of those people who can then become self-aware. So it's uncertain how many people are actually just hopeless. Maybe it's just people with personality disorders. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But uh, to come back to the introspection and and uh, rumination, I found these two quotes. Um, so she talks about analyzer. These analyzers. These are the people always asking why and looking for questions and trying to discover the deepest truths about themselves and the absolute truths about themselves. She says that analyzers showed less personal growth, self acceptance, and well being than those who simply relived happy memories. Um, and then she quotes G.K. Chesterton. I think we quoted Chesterton 
a week or two ago, interestingly enough, coincidentally. And he wrote that happiness is a mystery like religion and should never be rationalized. In other words, uh, you know, you should explore the negative, but don't overthink the positive. This was another interesting, this is actually something that I hadn't, um, like, consciously known before. It made sense when I read it, but I hadn't, you know, read about this before. The mm -hmm. fact that when you have a, a positive memory, like a good memory, it actually kind of, it really taints that memory to actually um, analyze it and to say, why was that such a good memory? Oh, what was going on? No, actually, if you have a good memory, all you should do is just reminisce about that good memory. Don't screw about, it up. Don't screw it up. Just be like, that was a good, that was a good memory. It makes me feel good. I was felt good at the time. It makes me happy now thinking about it and just leave it at that. That's all you need to do. Like happy, happy memories do not need to be analyzed. In fact, you shouldn't analyze them. Um, and you shouldn't analyze, um, bad memories either. Um, but you should explore them as she puts it. And there's a way to explore them. And that is, well, one of the examples she gives is the the kind of um, Penna Baker writing exercises. This is one of the, the main things that Jordan Peterson's under, um, um, future authoring and self-authoring program is based on, these Penna Baker writing exercises, where you're basically expressing um, like your, your thoughts and feelings about the, the most important like, events and things and, and values to you, and you just write about that. So she, she says there's a wrong way to journal. You know, if you're journaling every day and you're, you know, introspecting and asking all these why questions, chances are you're doing it wrong. There's not going to be any benefit from journaling. If you journal every couple days, a few times a week, maybe twice a week, and just focus on, like, um, important events or important things from your past, and you just write about it expressively, you, you look at your emotions and, and, you know, what happened, what you think about it, and what you feel about it, and you place it in, like, to, to get into, like, the self-authoring, you place it into kind of a narrative and um, and you, you you can like analyze it as you as you would analyze like a a piece of literature. You look at the themes, you look at the the perspective taking, um, and you kind of look at the the patterns in there. Like all that is helpful, but to just be like um, you know crying, "Woe is me!" and "Why why is me?" <laughs> that that's not going to be helpful. Uh, just on the ruminating, she said that ruminators um, they generally so. <laughs> Ruminators generally ignore or avoid feedback, lest it send them down the rabbit hole. They therefore tend just to be—they uh, tend not just to be poor perspective takers, but also to be more narcissistic and self-absorbed than non-ruminators. So, if you're actually worried, you know, constantly thinking about how bad you are, you're actually being pretty narcissistic. And the the ironic thing is that most people like that, um, and I know I used to ruminate a lot are actually, like, they don't consider themselves narcissists. They're, they're mad at all those other narcissists, right, who are, who are being mean and who just make life miserable. Well, actually, you know, old me and all you other roommates out there, it's like, you're the ones being the narcissists, and uh, so it's time to get over yourselves. Well, I'm, I'm guilty of that, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that and, and thinking, oh, Jesus Christ, how many hours, how many hundreds, yeah. how many thousands of hours have I spent ruminating in my life, yeah. you know, thinking, uh, well, at least I'm a good person, I'm, I'm <laughs> concerned about things, when in fact, yeah. you know, it just means I've been self-absorbed. Um, but just getting back to one of the points, which is um, that you mentioned in passing, um, about narcissism, to her great credit, uh, she has a, a chapter, or at least part of a chapter, that she calls uh, the, the cult of the self. Mm -hmm. And um, 
basically, uh, she's describing narcissism and how, uh, especially in the West, the and this has been measured in, in questionnaires and 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 tests of all sorts. Um, there have been indicators that narcissism in, in Western society has never been higher. Mm -hmm. Where there have been past generations that, um, I think she calls one the, the quiet generation. Mm -hmm. Just people who, who put their nose to the grindstone, and, and this would have been people in the in Depression-era USA and post-World post War II USA, going all the way up to like the 70s or 80s. Um, this completely changed in the 80s and 90s. Uh, even even prior to you know social media uh, and a lot of the tools that we have, which we've been pointing out, have been um, facilitators for uh, narcissistic behavior. So, to her great credit, and I think Paul Babiak of Snakes and Suits would would be very happy about this observation. Uh, she points out that um, part of the part of the great problem of of uh, the lack of insight among people um, in this day and age is that they are steeped in uh, the cult of the self. So she, uh, she points out that um, there are specific ways that we can lift ourselves from self-absorption to uh, self-awareness or resisting the cult of the self. And her three strategies are becoming an informer, cultivating humility, and practicing self-acceptance. So basically, um, for instance, does if you have... Does inform on your neighbors? <laughs> not quite. <laughs> what it does mean is, uh, suppose you have a Facebook page, and instead of posting selfies all the time about how great your vacation was, or... Or know, how bad it was. Or how bad it was, or, or where you're getting your nails done, or uh, some other kind of useless bit of trivia that seeks to put yourself in a, in a good light... And that no one really cares about. <laughs> and that no one cares about. Um, share information. Uh, be an informer of uh, useful, um, uplifting, uh, knowledge-inducing information. And it's something that um, I think we've kind of discussed here previously and, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, certainly, editing SOT is an attempt to, to be an informer. Um, the process of, of putting out there uh, just generally uplifting, or if not uplifting, then at least um, information and knowledge that people can actually make practical use of in their lives. So that was the first one. The second one was uh, cultivating humility. And of course, um, you know, that's a biggie uh, because sometimes we don't know how we're acting, acting egotistically. Um, so it, it means, um, well, she made a, a very distinct, or she made the distinction between uh, humility and self-worth. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting uh, because she said that people often confuse the two uh, and thus label humility as undesirable, even though the opposite is true, because it means appreciating our weaknesses and keeping our successes in perspective Humility is actually a necessary ingredient for self-awareness. Yeah, and uh, she gives this excellent example of the myth of Icarus, um, whose father built him this uh, set of artificial wings uh, that, that his son could fly with. 
and the wings were made out of feathers and wax. So, so as the myth goes, um, you know, Icarus was advised, fly too low, and the, the water from the sea is going to weigh the feathers down and you'll sink. But fly too high and the heat of the sun is going to melt the wax and, and uh, disintegrate the wings. And of course, Icarus, uh, in his lack of humility, uh, flies too high, gets too close to the sun, and the wax melts and he falls out of the sky and perishes. So just a, just a wonderful little um, bit of uh, mythology that she uses to, to kind of bring home the message. You, know, you, don't, have to, you don't have to feed your ego and, and fly too high. Uh, there's a middle ground, a middle way that we should kind of seek to, to travel um, in, in the exercise or, or path of having humility. And the third uh, practice she has is of self-acceptance. So um, <clears throat> let's say we have a, a flaw or a weakness. Uh, if we self-flagellate um, in, uh, or, or hate ourselves because we're, we have this particular weakness or flaw that we've noticed, and we're beating the shit out of ourselves because we're unhappy with, with how we are, uh, then you know, again, that's self-absorption. That's that's really just a a way that we're gonna stay stuck with whatever uh, traits or weaknesses we have. So, if if we can look at ourselves with a little objective distance uh, and compassion, um, and accept that you know this is a trait, this is my weakness, this is something I I get to work with. What can I do to become stronger? Who can I speak to who has maybe uh, experienced the same weaknesses and found solutions to them? Um, what? What is the question? And the tool she gives for that is to monitor one's interior dialogue or monologue, uh, maybe dialogue. <laughs> um, because if you observe the, the words that you're using to describe yourself and the way you talk to yourself, um, you can ask yourself, well, would I talk that way to like someone that I love? And this is actually one of Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, something like uh, treat yourself as if you were a person you were responsible for taking care of, um, something like that. Basically, uh, and he wrote that one because he points out in the beginning of that chapter that so many people actually don't care about themselves, don't take care of themselves, to, to the point where it just seems like they're like almost committing slow suicide, like... Uh, he talks about like the people who I think it's not a great example, but the the I think the the point is still there, like the like people who get medication and then don't like don't take their medication, even though they they actually believe that the medication is good. So leaving aside the you know the actual goodness or badness of the medication itself, these are people who getting the same medication would give it to their dog, but won't take it for themselves. Now people who just won't take care of themselves, and it seems because they like. What? Because they hate themselves for some reason? Well, probably in, in many cases. So the idea is is um, not for not to have an overinflated sense of like self esteem, but to just accept that you are flawed, but that there is actually something valuable about you at the same time, and that um, and that you know you're important enough to take care of. Um, and this is a kind of a, a fine distinction to make, and it's one of the like the good chapters, well, one of my favorite chapters I think in the book, just because there's a lot in there. Um, because the whole chapter is about like the, the rise of self-esteem 
And she makes some points like um, <clears throat> she defines the cult of self as the idea that you're special, unique, and superior. And so starting in around the 80s, um, like a bunch of people got the idea that kids didn't have self-esteem and didn't have enough self-esteem. So they're going to put in, into practice all these programs to increase kids' self-esteem. The problem was that there wasn't even any indication that there was a, a lack of self-esteem. In fact, you know, people had pretty good self-esteem anyways. Mm -hmm. So right from the beginning, there wasn't even a problem that needed to be solved. But, you know, like any kind of policy like this, um, once a problem is identified, even if it, if, it, if it doesn't exist, then the solution makers come in and want to like like um, reorganize society. They want to shape society in the direction they want it to, to, to go in, even if there's no problem to solve in the first place. And they only, only end up making things worse. And that's the point that she kind of makes in this chapter. Like um, she she's, says that there was like a shift over the, over the years um, from effort, self-effort to self-esteem. So we, there was like the shift on, um, well, from becoming great to just feeling great. So this was this is something that um, you know I've been encountering and, and thinking about for the last you know several months at least. And one was a discussion I had with some people talking about like the, you know the early Americans, like the people that basically settled America, and just the lives that they led, and the like the hardships that they went through. And just the amount of work and suffering that they had to go through, like every day, every day was a struggle. Like they didn't have, like didn't have adequate clothing. Like they'd have, you know, one one shirt for a year. You know, every year maybe they'd get a new shirt. And like a lot of these kids would just wear one shirt. They had their one shirt, not even any pants. It was just a long shirt that they wore every day, and uh, it had to last them a year. And even in like the 20th century where there's a great amount of like wealth and American society in particular got very wealthy, people were well off relatively. Um, there was still, even in like the early part of the century, like a, you know, this, this um, goal to, to actually become great. And then in the eighties, when we thought for some reason that, you know, kids were lacking self-esteem, we just encouraged them to think that they were great, to feel great, you know, to all think that you're special, unique and superior. Well, the, you know, the results of that have actually been catastrophic. Um, so I'm just going to read some of my notes from this chapter. Um, first of all, the people, like another fact, people with high self-esteem are actually more violent and aggressive than people with low self-esteem. And like I said, it wasn't even low in the first place. So we're actually encouraging kids to have more self-esteem which in, will probably make them even you know less self-aware will make them more entitled mm -hmm. and will make them more aggressive um that was the word i was thinking yeah. of also and yeah so um she has this thing called the feel-good effect uh, she, which she talks about and this is like seeing yourself with through rose through rose-colored glasses and when you do this like i like i quoted about the ruminators um when you do this, when you see yourself as this special, unique, superior snowflake, you actually can't deal with criticism, failure, and setbacks. So that's the problem that a lot of kids, like college students today, can't deal with because they can't, they have no frame of reference for dealing with criticism or feedback because they, they have become narcissists. They, they have great self-esteem, apparently, and they can't deal with minor failures, like minor setbacks in life. Everything is this huge catastrophe Whereas for a previous generation, it would, you know, previous generations look at these young kids and are just like, oh my God, it's like you are such drama queens that what, you can't even stand being offended for an instant. It's like, um, you know, grow up. And, but the thing is, is that 
we're encouraging these kind of traits and as if they're a good thing when in fact people who who have this high opinion or this like rose-colored opinion of themselves who think of themselves as as like um you know great people who are superior and and unique and special when we, when you ask the people that know them that interact with them what they think about these people they actually perceive them as deceitful arrogant defensive and thin-skinned so you're actually encouraging people um so this is not following one of jordan peterson's rules of life to 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 not let your kids do anything that makes you dislike them in the hopes that they will grow up to be like a member of society that is actually that people actually like and can get along with and can interact with you're actually teaching we're actually teaching kids to grow up so that people don't like them so that people think they're deceptive little like you know thin-skinned defensive liars um which is not a good thing um but she does point out that the the one time when it is a good idea to see yourself in a good light is only when you need to she gives the example of when you need to bounce back from like constant challenges or or you need to you need to succeed through sheer persistence so when you're doing something that's just so difficult and like uh, such a long process that's so wearing on you you need a little break every once in a while you need to be able to like remind yourself that you're you know a good person but that's the only time that it's necessary it's only when you're dealing with like a really stressful long-term like slog through some big massive project or something like that Right. So a couple problems, I think, with the, the whole self-esteem hypothesis. So, um, you know, you're going back to those early Americans, uh, you know, if you, if you were to ask them, what do you think, how do you feel about yourself? You know, it would have probably seemed like the, just an absolutely bizarre, you know, question. You're like, how do you feel inside about your contributions to, you know, social justice or, you know, how do you feel about yourself? Well, it was more practical. You know, that, that would have been probably answered in terms of how you met the challenges of your life, you know, whether you're able to, you know, ford a river or, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever you were up to. Um, so I think that the basic premise is just flawed. There was never a problem with self-esteem. That, yeah. that was never an issue. Mm -hmm. And I think she points that out. But a 2003 study found that at least in the, you know, new millennium, there was no, nobody had any issues with self-esteem. Yeah. And in fact, it was, you know, probably because of the self-esteem movement, like you said, it was going in to the opposite direction. But then this whole culture of self that that movement really, uh, really, you know, paves the way for, or is kind of like probably the outcome of, it kind of, it seems like it splits to me into at least two camps. And one of them is that excessive rumination, self-flagellation camp where you're still completely self-absorbed, but you can never meet that high self-esteem standard that's been set. You know, these people who, mm -hmm. you know, oh, they have such good lives, they must feel so good about themselves, you know, so popular or whatever, and versus, you know, these that other camp that's like, you know, the, I don't know what they do, but everything that they do hinges on maintaining some positive self-regard and feeling, you know, uh, elated about themselves. Uh, so this whole, that whole thing spawns these two fundamentally uh, dysfunctional attitudes towards life, whereas, you know, a more nuanced and less bleached psychology would look at life in terms of the challenges out there you know it's who cares how you feel about yourself there's so much to do mm -hmm. there's so there's an entire universe out there that exists outside that doesn't need you mm -hmm. and you don't matter one speck and you know to somebody who lives in the cult of self that is probably the biggest and most you know just the nastiest thing to say to somebody but for you know anybody else you know it's just a you know, statement of fact just some basic sense of you know uh, humility i guess like she she advocates 
practicing. But I just I thought that it was really interesting because she quotes Carl Rogers, the humanitarian psychologist, who argued that people could only achieve full potential if they had quote unquote unconditional positive regard for themselves. And I just think that, you know, just man, you just really just really f you just f that test <laughs> just i mean i don't know much about carl rogers but just in that statement it's just really sad well you know the the irony of people who are constantly self-promoting um is that at, at least some of them or many of them actually don't ultimately feel good about themselves because they're constantly trying to live up to this projected image of of how mm -hmm. you know wonderful their lives are and how successful they are and, and they're constantly reminded that they don't actually live up to that image. Yes. Well, so, like, she gives the example of of uh, one individual who is um, who is very um, uh, kind of out there in social media, who ultimately had to, you know, take a step back and put herself out of outside of the equation. I think this was a a, a model uh, who mm -hmm. had um, created a presence for herself, and uh, when she realized these things about herself. Uh, she created a, a website that was more about the uh, becoming an informer of, of certain information that was specific to, I forget what it was exactly, um, but uh, she, I guess through a lot of pain and struggle, came to understand that, that the way she was going about her life and, and, and her sharing of, of her life uh, was detrimental to her. Um, so she so she, uh, in showing a great amount of insight, turned that situation around. Uh, and there are all kinds of uh, little case studies of, um, of individuals who had, either through their own uh, realizations or uh, realizations that were uh, kind of proposed to them by others, including uh, Yurik herself as a, as a consultant, uh, had made these life turnarounds. Well, I want to read a page from the from the chapter on the cult of self. This is where she talks about narcissism and uh, you know selfie syndrome and all those things. Um, she says that we don't always realize what we don't always realize is that paradoxically, an intense self focus not only obscures our vision of those around us, it distorts our ability to see ourselves for what we really are. Indeed, research has shown that in general there is an inverse relationship between how special we feel and how self-aware we are. One need not look far to find examples. The people who post the most selfies on Facebook, for instance, seem to have the least awareness of how annoying this behavior is to the rest of us. Of course, this isn't to say that anyone who takes selfies or uses social media is a narcissist, but scientifically, there is no question that these things are related, and there is ample evidence that narcissism is on the rise. For example, in a study of tens of thousands of U.S. college students, Jean Twenge and her colleagues found that between the mid-1980s and 2006, narcissism increased a full 30%, as measured by statements like, if I ruled the world, it would be a better place, and I always know what I'm doing. And lest you pin, and lest you pin this trend entirely on millennials, it's not just those of us born between 1980 and 1999 who show this pattern. Another long-running study that analyzed high schoolers' responses to the, question, um, to the question, I am an important person, found that in the 1950s, only 12% agreed. So only 12% of, of people agreed, of high schoolers agreed that they were an important person. But by 1989, that is when Gen Xers were in high school, that number jumped to roughly 80%. 
And remember the study from the last chapter where 25% of high school aged baby boomers put themselves in the top 1% of their ability to get along with others. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So she actually, she goes into this um, concept of self-presentation. This is the, like the way we um, present ourselves to others. And she gives the example of like doing it on social media. And apparently, um, she says that self-presentation itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, um, but an interesting pattern has emerged suggesting that as self-presentation increases, empathy decreases. Since the year 2000, right around the time when sites like MySpace, Friendster, and other precursors to Facebook exploded, people started becoming less empathetic and more self-centered. And they've, there was even a study um, that they did back when MySpace was still a thing. Um, so... One study, I'll just read, one study randomly assigned participants into one of two groups who each spent 35 minutes online. The first group spent time editing their MySpace pages while the other plotted the route it, it, they took to school on Google Maps. When the researchers measured narcissism level, levels in each group, participants who had spent time on MySpace scored significantly higher, <laughs> suggesting that not only, uh, not only that social media does increase narcissism, but that it has a virtually immediate impact. So when you're me forming, uh, you know, the, the opposite of informing on Facebook, chances are you're actually getting more narcissistic as you're doing it. And one of the uh, stats that she points out is that the, when they were, you know, someone was doing some study on Facebook and these types of things and found that um, of the f users of Facebook, 80 percent were me formers. So these are the people you were talking about who, you know, post selfies. Everything they post is basically about themselves, you know, how they're feeling during the day, what they're doing, what they ate, you know, uh, an encounter they had with someone at work. Basically, like their own little journal, um, you know, online that they're sharing with everyone. 80% mm -hmm. are informers, or me formers, but that 20% uh, were informers. These are the people that um, spent, that um, were informing people about, you know, things not relating to themselves. It might be news or, you know, things they read, blah, you know, information, blah, blah, blah. But um, the interesting thing about that was that the informers actually spent more time on social media, um, but they weren't, they were spending more time because they were basically more engaged and, and in this informative activity, right? Mm -hmm. They were spending more time giving more information to people. And the, the, the informers actually had better relationships, better personal relationships in their lives than the, the me-formers. Mm -hmm. And now, I'd, uh, I don't know if there's a correlation or not, but I thought it was interesting that uh, it was this 80-20 split. And when talking about self-aware people, there was like a, an 85-15 split. So, it's, well, and based on what she wrote, I, I think it would be pretty, probably the correlation is pretty close that the people who are actually informers on social media are, pro are pr probably the more self-aware people compared to the you know, the, the, the selfie posters who um, are all over Instagram. Well, <laughs> you didn't see this, Harrison, while you were reading, but uh, Adam, Adam held up his phone and did a, a little selfie uh, impersonation. He couldn't help himself. <laughs> oh, we might have to use that as our, uh, as our image when we publish the show. <laughs> the selfie generation. But, you know, Adam, when you did that, it reminded me of the story that came out like uh, two years ago. There was a guy, I think on the... Brooklyn Bridge, who was about to jump, he was suicidal. And some, uh, some woman who was uh, kind of out of proximity to the bridge, who knew what was going on, smiled and took a selfie of herself with this guy on the bridge in the background. 
And uh, of course, stories were read about it because it was such an obvious case of her being um, just a soulless, a, a soulless, mm -hmm. you know, <clears throat> pathological individual that she wouldn't have the presence of mind to realize the implications of what was happening and just kind of put herself at the scene and smile and, mm -hmm. you know, this is me in New York. <laughs> Look what's going on, you know, and Look, a real suicide. Right. Yeah. And it, it really, it really speaks uh, to her lack of empathy for the individual who was um, feeling the way he was that, that she could, uh, and her lack of insight, yeah, uh, lack how, of external self-awareness. Yes. That, that she would, that she would present herself uh, to the world in, in such a way. So, um, and that, that reminded me of a, a couple of other anecdotes that Yurik gives um, in regards to uh, gaining empathy and, and gaining perspective uh, in situations and uh, relationships with others, friendships, and, uh, and marriages. Um, she gave one example of how um, when two individuals were in a, a, a marital difficulty, um, how one of them, by taking a step back from her own um, her own anger, uh, her own um, disquiet about her her husband's situation or or, uh, or behavior, how she managed to, in a writing exercise, uh, write about what she thinks would make the situation better for the both of them. So she put herself at a at a remove at a at an objective distance, and it in fact helped the marriage. Um, and there was a kind of a, a study where uh, there was a control and groups of people who did the same exercises, uh, these writing exercises that put them at a distance, um, and had constructed a a kind of a, basically put them put themselves in their spouse's shoes. Uh, and statistically, those those marriages were more successful in the long run, uh, like a year later. Um, and the author also mentioned how doing something similar had ha can help with friendships. Um, trying to address something at a you know you, you're not you know a point that she makes throughout the book, which I think is really useful, is there is no absolute truth with any of with any of these things. Rather, you know, the truth of the situation is coming at it from as many different angles and perspectives as possible, both from within your own ability to, to gain insight into your own behavior and thinking, and, um, and in looking at receiving feedback from others. So there's that synthesis that, if worked on, can really improve relationships with, uh, with others and make your life better. Uh, and and why not why not try something like that? Why not engage in, in that process? Because it's kind of scary. I think a lot of it is um, you know it's it's terrifying. I think no matter how good you are at mm -hmm. at getting feedback or you know really evaluating yourself objectively, it's always there's always some um, some aspect of it that is just categorically terrifying. But she did the one of the values of her book is uh, I think in the exercises that she provides. And we've discussed some of them, like the, you know, she alludes to like Pennebaker writing exercises and, you know, she's got, a, a, there's some aspects of journaling and introspection that she advocates as long as it's not ruminating and it's based on, like you said, Elon, what 
not why. But in terms of getting external feedback, I think one of my the most charming stories in her book is regarding the uh, dinner of truth, mm-hmm. which uh, she she relates the story of a communications researcher slash professor who he was designing this way of opening communication pathways, and he decided to try it out on his kids at dinner one day. Yeah. And so he sat down with his kids, and he sat there, and he, he looked at him, and he said, okay, now I, I want you to tell Daddy what you find most annoying about him. He's like, you can, you can say whatever you want. It, it's not going to hurt my feelings, and you're not going to get in any trouble. And, he's, you know, and then he just waits for them to answer, and they're squirming, and yeah, you know, looking they're, away. All, they're looking away. And then he's like, it's okay you can tell me and you know i then you won't get in any trouble and so then the one of the children looks at and he they have tears in their eyes and they're like dad i we it's so scary when you yell at us it makes me want to run in the room and just cry and i just want to cry and then the pretty soon the both kids are just terribly emotional and upset and the father is you know the researcher is just sitting there just absolutely in in shock because he'd never realized that he'd come across this way to his own children. Mm-hmm. And not only did this have a beneficial impact on him, but it also, you know, for them, it gave them a chance to, to hear their own um, experience being articulated and doing it with, um, even, you know, when they're, you know, they're trembling and they're terrified of the repercussions, it gave them a chance to articulate the truth and to do it in a loving community communicative way that I think it was, uh, that then became the model for this dinner of truth that she discusses where you basically, the whole idea is that you, you go and you, uh, you invite someone to dinner or out to eat. And then you basically set them down and you ask that question, what do you find the most annoying about me? Mm -hmm. And she, she kind of, you know, she discusses the fact that you don't just ask anybody, you're not just going to ask your, you know, your oblivious boss or some jerk who doesn't care about you, but you, you want to, when you're getting feedback, you want to find the right person, someone who cares about you, but is at the same time willing to give you the critical truth. And you want to ask the right questions and you want them to be, you want them to have a, a sufficient exposure to what your problem is, whatever mm-hmm. problematic behavior that you you think you might have, um, or uh, yeah, that you think that they might understand. And then you also you want them to to know what success looks like. So you want them to be competent in that in that way. And then you and then you want to go and you want to go through the right process of getting that feedback, which you know, dinner of truth is one way. Um, and you know, she has other exercises. There's different uh, exercises for entire corporations, like the 360 degree, which is anonymous. You get anonymous feedback from a um, from a ton of different people. Mm-hmm. And the advantage, just to interject really quickly, the advantage of the 360 feedback, which is anonymous, is the fact that it is anonymous, because that's a, a good way of um, eliminating the mom effect. So, because people, like like you mentioned earlier, Alon, people do not want to share their opinions of you to your face. They'll very readily tell other people what they think about you, mm-hmm. but they won't tell you to your face, and they'll in fact lie to you. And that's almost a rule. Like, pra- practically everyone unless they're really disagreeable or they're your boss or something who are, who's used to chewing you out, they will lie to you and they will they will do anything to avoid telling you what they really think about you. So anonymous feedback is a way of getting around that. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're their boss because people are, or you're above them in some kind of hierarchical sense, people are very, are, are extra unwilling to, to, to call that person out and to tell them what they really feel. Uh, so that's why, that's why um, for example, 
um, like people, where is it? Oh, it's the CEO disease, she calls it. <clears throat> CEOs tend to be less self-aware, and that's because like their past successes lead them to be overconfident, and it actually makes it, it makes it harder for them to hear feedback because they have an inflated sense of their own self-importance, and it makes others less reluctant to give it. So CEOs, like pe bosses, people above you on the whatever like social hier hierarchy you're in, are actually in a really tough spot because they can't find anyone to give them honest feedback because they're surrounded by yes-men who are terrified of them. So anyways, continue on, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's, uh, that's a good interjection. Um, well, I guess I, you could just say, just uh, point out the obvious fact that sometimes the feedback you get is impossible to correct. <laughs> like sometimes you just have to admit that, you know, that's a flaw that I have yeah. and that I'm working on it. But it's also in the... Just admitting it, um, she has some stories of, of you know, entrepreneur CEOs who they they know that they can't communicate well, mm -hmm. but and that's just not their forte. Yeah. But Maybe like they just Mark say, Zuckerberg type or yeah, something. yeah, they just they just say that you know I I still care about this team and I'm gonna and these are the things that I'm going to do to show you that. And even though they can't, still can't communicate very well, they at least are, you know, there's an awareness, you know, yeah. and I think this is, you know, that's the most important thing about this book is the increase in awareness that, um, that, it, it, that it kind of paves the way to, or it kind of has the roadmap towards this increased awareness that protects everybody involved because where there's just all this darkness and assumptions and, you know, this person, you know, just uh, just hates me or this person's a psychopath mm -hmm. and you're not voicing, you're not finding out what's, you're not testing reality, you're not testing these hypotheses, you're just opening, you're just opening the way for, um, for little, little tiny forms of tragedy to occur. Yeah. And every tragedy that I think we can prevent is probably our duty to prevent it, mm -hmm. even if it is as painful as you know asking your kids like, "What's the most annoying thing about yeah. me?" It's like, ah, oh, <laughs> you're the most terrifying person in the world. Well, along those same lines, I, I think that Yurik uh, also says that the the best kind of predictors or people to give feedback in a company are the underlings of the CEO. Yeah, uh, the same thing in the military. Um, but they're, they're most often the people who are least likely to be asked for feedback. Yeah. So a, a leader in, in any context has to kind of really want the, the, the feedback to be given and uh, have a willingness to, uh, to take it in mm -hmm. and to act on it. And to really model like the, the right climate. Like she gives the example of, I think it was, I think it was Ford, um, you know, the vehicle company that um, was going through like a like near bankruptcy and they brought in this like big CEO guy to kind of turn things around. And so he was telling everyone, it's okay, like I, I want you to be honest. You Like it's totally okay if you tell me like what the problems are. And he had this whole setup where um, every day there was a meeting, every week there was a meeting where they had to look at all of their projects and if they were in the red, like they weren't going to meet their deadline or there, there were problems, or if they were yellow, which means that they were in the process of solving the problem, or if they were in the green where everything was good. And every week he was getting all greens. And he, he, he was like, well, what do I do? You know, I've really tried to, to get people to be honest. And he was trying to like model it. He was trying to show that it was a, that he was trustworthy. He wasn't going to chew them out, but everyone was terrified of admitting like their reds uh, of showing their reds on their you know presentations every week, just terrified. They were convinced that the first person to show a red was going to be gone the next day mm -hmm. and like maybe worse. <laughs> and so eventually this one guy 
just you know said screw it i'm gonna do it and he went in and it, like there was this new line of you know to cars that they were bringing out and there was like a major delay they had to redo this one part entirely and so they weren't going to meet their deadline so he showed his red and the the ceo guy like uh, like broke out in this huge smile and he's like oh great okay let's work on this and everyone was like oh what wow <laughs> and so like the next day they come in and, and the guy that brought this red is like chatting and smiling with the ceo guy and they're having a great time so eventually so now all these people are like oh wow so then they came in and like everything's red <laughs> and he was like okay great and so they so over the weeks and months they they got through all this and he really and he turned the company around and it created this new environment and people stopped leaking to the press because people were Employees were leaking all the internal problems and uh, and like uh, um, and controversies and and things like scandals from within the company to this journalist, and so the CEO called up this journalist and he's like, well, why are, like why are you running all this? Where are you getting this? And he's like, well, it's your guys that are calling me because they don't they don't feel that they can that uh, like the 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 leadership the management is can, will respond to this like they I'm the only person they can tell. Mm -hmm. So once the company got, got turned around. All the leaks stopped because things were being taken care of internally and people felt like they were in an environment where they could tell the truth. So it just kind of completely turned, changed the atmosphere of, of the company. Now, I wanted to give one more example of the, the one you brought up, Corey, about the, like the, the situations where you just have to kind of own a personality trait. You realize you're never going to, to change it, so you just be honest about it. And I can't remember who the guy was, but she gives, she gives the example in there of this guy who didn't have very many people, very good people skills and it was really annoying to other people and people didn't like him until one day he kind of said, he just came up, came out in front of everyone and said, you know, I'm not very good at communicating with people. I'm not going to ask, you know, I'm not good at asking who your wife is or how she's doing. And just to let you guys know, I'm still not going to do that. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you how you're doing. I'm not going to care. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And from then on, people liked him because he was open about it and they could joke about it. So, and she gives one example where, um, there was this one female employee and he came up to her and, and he said, oh, that's a really nice shirt you're wearing. And she was like taken aback. She's like, oh, wow. It's like, you've, you've never given me a compliment before. Why did you compliment me this time? And he says, oh, because all the other sh shirts you've worn have been totally ugly and <laughs> didn't look good on you at all. <laughs> and so she just laughed because it was this guy's personality, right? So there are some people who are just, who have like traits like that, that they just cannot change. But if they're willing to put them out there and admit them, it actually makes them more endearing and it's funny and they can make a joke about it. And it, and it makes, you know, it, when you can laugh at your own like flaws and have other people laugh at them too, then that eliminates the problem. You know, it, it isn't an interpersonal problem anymore because it just it breaks that tension and it, uh, it just removes that conflict. So I thought that was a pretty funny story too. Now, um, one other kind of thread that I wanted to follow was this whole leadership thing. Um, now, this made me think um, about this next little tidbit made me think about like academia in particular, but it applies to any kind of field of expertise. Because she points out that the more expertise we think we have, mm -hmm. um, the, more har the more harmful knowledge blindness can be because we actually, you know, we think we're, we, we actually think we're better than we actually are. And, and this actually applies to people who know what they're doing for the most part. So she get, I, I quoted at the very beginning the example of engineers where only one out of a thousand engineers thought that they were average or below average. When, you know, 50% of, of engineers are average or below average. So, um, so what's going on there? Well, the more like expertise you have, the more that you're like a, a celebrated professional, actually that's not really a good thing because it gets to your head and you're actually less likely to, well, you're more likely to be uh, unaware 
of yourself and uh, and how you're perceived by others. You're actually going to overinflate your expertise. And so that applies to like the CEO disease, as I pointed out too. Now, um, just to reiterate one of the things that you said, Elan, I think, um, and that was that, um, yeah, it was what you said about how in the military and in, in, in um, like corporations, it's actually the underlings who are the only ones that are able to give an objective um, uh, picture of their boss. So if you ask like all the managers to rate themselves, they're horrible. Like if they can't, they can't predict who will be promoted, who's more competent, but the underlings are very perceptive. Like if they look at their managers, their bosses, they can, they can look at those traits and say, that guy's really competent. He's, he's got good like promotability and they'll be right. But the actual managerial class and like the, the bosses, they can't tell mm -hmm. they, because they're stuck, you know, they're stuck in their own little bubble, right? It takes the people below you to be able to point out your flaws and point out and to point out your strengths. Um, so like, um, well, there's there's uh, connections to, to make to ponderology there, but I'll let that one slide for now. Um, I wanted to go back to what uh, Corey was talking about, the dinner of truth. Um, it is a great exercise. Um, I haven't tried it yet, but maybe I will one day if I get up the courage. But, uh, <laughs> well, I, I wanted to comment on that as well, because you prefaced it by saying that um, you know there, there is a certain amount of dread involved in getting mm -hmm. uh, honest feedback. Um, and I think the reason for that is because we have been so inured, uh, we've put up our defenses for so long, we've been living in bubbles for so long, to, to one extent or another, that uh, the whole process itself of, of being honest and, um, and, and giving strong feedback and making an effort simultaneously to understand our own subjective and objective uh, feelings and thoughts regarding a relationship or, or something, we're so out of touch with that, we've been given so little training, um, so so few words to 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 use in describing the process that um, there is there is a, a fear of the unknown, and it you know it reminded me we a few of us were watching a interview that Jordan Peterson had with Doctor Oz recently, where uh, Jordan Peterson describes walking down the street in I think a bad neighborhood in L.A. And, and seeing this kid run out of his car towards him and saying, oh, you're Jordan Peterson, you know, I admire your work, and, and it's been really helpful to me. Can you, can you just hold on for one moment? So the kid runs back to the car, uh, comes back with his dad, it ends up, and, and shares with Peterson that he's been applying. Um, well, they're both just beaming smiles, right? They're, they're, they're beaming smiles. Super happy. They're, they're holding each other, but they share that, you know, the kid admits that he, he was working on having a better relationship with his father, uh, which brought tears to Peterson's eyes as he's describing this experience of getting all of this wonderful feedback about this kid who, who has made the effort uh, to look at himself, look at his relationship with his father and have some kind of real authentic connection to him. And uh, Peterson, you know, he, he makes the point that, you know, there, there is so there's so little uh, real encouragement of people uh, in this direction. Um, and of course, it, it gives his life meaning to, to have people share their growth, uh, which is ultimately what Yurik is talking about here. Um, she makes a distinction between uh, doing well, which is this kind of outward appearance of, of getting it all done, and learning well. Uh, and learning well is this, it's the 
it's the conscious process of learning from one's experience, of of not feeling bad about a failure, but of seeing it as an opportunity to grow. Um, that uh, that also makes the book so valuable. Uh, just making these fine distinctions that that we haven't had a chance to 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 think about previously in other material. Well, and just to carry on with that, just that line of thought really quick. Um, you know, I think, you know, part of that fear also is, uh, you said it was like fear of the unknown, and, you know, that's that's such a broad category, you know, and you can think about it as fear of, you know, of finding out something about yourself that is so fundamentally at odds of what you believed that you can't compute it, you know, that you'd have to change your entire way of relating to, to others, to yourself, you know, and the kind of disintegration process that goes along with that. And discussing that... Uh, that interview that you're talking about with Jordan Peterson. In that interview, he also brings up uh, this archetype uh, from the that's embodied in the Harry Potter series. I think it's the second series. I don't know. I haven't I haven't read it. The second volume. But there's the uh, is it the castle or Hogwarts or something? There's the, whatever it is. It's the order. Um, this highly involved and dedicatedly built order, and then underneath of it is the basilisk. You know this this horrible beast that you have to go down and you have to confront in order to I don't know bring about uh, some new positive growth. And to me, I think that's really a really strong and good archetype for the kind of like you're talking about this bubbles the bubbles that we have this 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 order that we have about who we are this our belief systems and then confronting the basilisk that's at the bottom of it the fact that you are wrong you're guaranteed to be wrong there's no way you can be right you don't have the ability you can't see yourself objectively you like uh Yurik says in the book you know we we've taught that our 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 subconscious or unconscious mind is like a padlocked box that somebody that you know a psychoanalyst has the key for but it's actually this hermetically sealed box that you will never gain access to you can't be right about who you are and so when you go down and you confront that that chaos and you do it willingly with the awareness i guess that that is just part of your you know, the this natural process you know this natural archetype that's been a, a, around with her you know as long as humans have had consciousness that that's you know that's really what these people are doing when they go out when the, you know when you open yourself up and ask you know you know what you know what can i do better or what is annoying about me or what is well you know what's wrong with me you know i'm sure there's nothing wrong with me here, but. <laughs> well that's that uh, reminds me of something else that jordan peterson has said a number of times uh, and he, you know, constantly tries to drive the point home is, um, you know, you're not all that you could be. Mm -hmm. And if you accept that, I think at least if you can start off with that acceptance that you're not all that you could be, and, you know, maybe there's some things that you do that you aren't aware of that's annoying, or maybe there is things that, uh, you do know about that are annoying mm -hmm. and just accept that that at least makes the process more approachable mm -hmm. uh, and more, you know, able to at least like start that process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With that said, uh, um, maybe our last, uh, our last mini subject will be another technique, another two techniques for, for actually gaining self-awareness. Um, 
one was kind of mentioned. She calls it the right feedback uh, model. And this is basically finding the right people, asking the right questions, and engaging in the right process. So the people she recommends to find to actually give you feedback would be a small group of what she calls like honest, loving critics who are exposed to your behavior. So loving critics are the people that have that are concerned about the best for you, right? So this isn't a person that hates you. Like This wouldn't be an enemy, an unloving critic. Um, this is actually someone that has your best interests at heart, at heart, but who also is exposed to your behavior on a regular basis. So you can't just ask like your your grandma that lives you know in a different town what she thinks of you, because chances are she's going to be a, a loving, what does she call it? Not a critic, but a loving admirer or something. Like you, um, she's not going to be necessarily. She's not going to necessarily give you honest feedback because she loves you too much and she just sees the good in you. So you want someone that is um, exposed to your behavior that you actually interact with. Um, you know, not someone necessarily on the other side of the planet, um, but someone around you who who can be honest. And then you have to ask the right questions. So these this is, would be very specific. So you have you basically have a hypothesis and you want to test it. So you get an idea, okay, I want to ask about this issue, and I want them, um, uh, and, and here's a really important thing, is that she says that the be- you get the best results, you see the best results if you only focus on one or maybe two things at a time. You don't get like a full personality criticism on all of your f- flaws and everything you do wrong. You get one specific thing that you're doing wrong, and or that, you know, just you're you know, the one specific thing you're not aware of or that, that it's hampering your life in some way, whatever. And then the process, the right process, is to then get that person to, like, observe you for a period of time after you ask them. Not to just get their in- immediate feedback and and um, and then just go from there. You actually get them to, to, to keep that in mind and observe you for, like, the next month, keeping that one specific thing in mind. And then you get more feedback from them afterwards. You have more conversations to follow up with them Okay, well, what did you observe in the last month, and how you know on this one particular issue, and then you can get more feedback from them as time goes on, as you work with it, as you work on this one issue, and that. So I think that was very important. You only focus on one or two things because you you'll get overloaded and you won't be able to do it if you're focusing on more. That's taking that's biting off more than you can chew. That's like um, what Gurdjieff and Jordan Peterson talk about is taking those baby steps. When you're doing something, you, you have to be in the zone of proximal development where you you have a goal that you can reach. If you're just overloaded by this this grand um, this grand goal, that it, it will be out of reach. You won't be able to get there. You have to take uh, like baby steps in order to get it, one step at a time. Right? What's what's the what's the the book from What About Bob? <laughs> baby steps, right? Yeah, baby steps. <laughs> so. Um, um, that's in uh, chapter seven, but there are a couple like quotes from chapter seven that I thought were really good. Before, but maybe, no, but before I do that, I'm gonna give the one more, uh, one more technique. This is the three R model. So this is how to to get feedback basically and to make it work. So this is uh, it's called three R's because it's ba- it's base basically receive, reflect, and respond. So receiving feedback is the first part of this model and that is to like when you receive feedback it might come out of nowhere you might have asked for it but however you get it um the like the 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 way to approach it is to receive it um well maybe i'll read one quote first before i describe each one um because she a couple times in the book she she lays it out in this really good sentence and she does it a couple different ways so i kind of combine them together to to put it you know to give to have the maximum punch 
But she says, receive feedback with grace, reflect on it with courage, and respond to it intelligently with purpose. So when you receive feedback, you have to do it with grace. You have, okay, okay, I'm getting feedback. I've just gotten feedback. I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to get defensive. I'm just going to sit with it for a while. And then the, the way to do that is to mine it for possible truth. So you say, okay, well, in what ways can, is this, can this be true? Is it true? Can it be true? What are the ways in which it could be true? You really have to like, look at it because you're not going to want to. You're going to have to look at it as if it might be true. And then from there, um, so that's just receiving it. Um, but then when you actually reflect on it, you have to give yourself some time. So don't just immediately like deal with the issue. Don't immediately respond. You reflect on it, she says, for a matter of days or even weeks. So you really want to make sure that you understand the feedback, first of all, that you understand what they're saying, that, that, because it might just be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and that might be, you know, there's a small chance it could be because of a misunderstanding or they're not seeing things correctly, but chances are it's because they're seeing something that you're not seeing. So you really have to make sure that you understand the feedback and that, that you can apply what they're saying to something actually concrete that you actually do. And because, because who knows, you might, it might be so foreign that they say something and you're totally wondering what it means and you, you can't even see the actual behavior that, that they're talking about. So you might apply it in different, in different areas and in, in, in places where it doesn't match or, you know, it doesn't apply. So you really have to make sure that you understand the feedback and, um, like I said, give, give yourself some time to think about it. Um, and then see if or how it will affect you in the long term. Because there is some feedback that you get that might be true, but that you don't need to change. And this might be an example, you know, you, you get feedback from your boss, like he, he gives one example of, I think, uh, uh, um, an Indian employee, like in India, maybe it wasn't India, but it basically in the culture, it was like women shouldn't be perceived as being um, too ambitious. So the feedback she got was that she was too ambitious. And so she thought about that. And, and at first it, it was because she was like in this culture too, she felt it was a bad thing, right? Um, oh, you know, I, I, I'm too ambitious. That's bad. Maybe I should be less ambitious. But no, she decided, okay, well, that's the feedback I got. It was, a, it was negative from the people around me, from my bosses. But she actually said, well, no, that's actually a good thing. I want to, you know, I don't want to be ambitious in a, like, a, you know, a cold-hearted or, you know, um, obnoxious. obnoxious way. But th this is an important part about myself. So she basically got a new job where she could do what she wanted to do, and she did a great job at it. So this was something that was perceived as negative by the people around her, but which she owned and then um, like further like developed her life in a positive way because of. Um, so, so that's part of like deciding if you're going to act on it or not, because not all feedback you, you necessarily need to act on. It, you know, it could be that uh, you've, that you've realized a strength about yourself or something. Again, it all depends on context. And this is, this is your, this is your responsibility, right? It's your responsibility to, to determine, um, if you're going to respond to that feedback, if it really applies, if you want, you know, if you want to, it's totally up to you. And then the last one would be to respond. So only after you've really like accepted the f or um, received the feedback, really thought about it, really understood it, really decided what you're going to do, that you then decide to respond. Um, I thought that was good advice. And then just uh, those quotes that I was talking about. This one we already mentioned, but this is how she puts it. Other people generally see us better than ourselves. You know, full stop. <laughs> Take that on board. And then um, this one was interesting too. I wasn't aware of this. Even strangers can get an accurate read on us as good as our friends or family. Mm -hmm. So if you just meet someone and you interact with them for, I don't know if it was a period of five minutes or even less, like 30 seconds, someone you don't know, 
they can actually give you as good feedback about yourself as your friends and family. That's how transparent we are to the people around us. Um, Isn't that incredible? Yeah, that was very interesting. And that's from an actual study that they did. So, uh, um, yeah. And then, um, well, just to, to go back to that um, like reflection on the, on the feedback, she writes that, um, that we should take others' opinions seriously, but we have to evaluate it and determine how and if to act on it. So again, this is this is like um, this is the, the kind of like the middle ground between um, she just like Corey, you described the, the the opposite types at the beginning of the show of the people who totally accept everything or who are very externally self-aware. They have a great idea of what people expect from them and uh, other, how other people see them, and then they totally um, they. they they manage their entire lives around fulfilling that image and fulfilling those requirements, those external requirements, but they don't have anything, they don't know who they are. They, they don't have anything authentic about themselves. Then there are the people who know exactly who they are, but just are totally oblivious to how they treat other people or how other people see them. So this is, this is why, again, it's up to each person as an individual to go through this process, not to just blindly accept what other people say about you um, and not to just blindly think that you're you know, that you've got it all together and you know exactly who you are. There's this middle ground, and that's really the the place for the individual, you know, confronting the the chaos of probability around you. It's like, well, which, okay, it's always up to us to choose which option to, to actualize, to bring into reality, just to bring it back to, like, our, our shows on, like, information theory and the philosophy to kind of tie those abstract concepts into this real-life example. You get feedback. You are then presented with possibilities, possible courses of action. Now, how you proceed, what choice you actually make, will be guided by those aspects of internal self-awareness, who you are, right? What your values are, what your aspirations are, what your passions are, um, what your fit is, what the, what the ideal environment for you is. So it's always a, a, the, the responsibility of, of you, of each individual, of me, to look at the feedback and keep that sense of individuality, keep that sense of, of who you are as well, um, because otherwise, you know, otherwise you're just just another NPC. <laughs> uh, just one thing that came to my mind when I was reading the book and reading about the you know values and all the exercises and finding your values is that I kept thinking about an archaeological dig and in terms of the more that you learn about yourself and the more you learn about who you really are, what your values really are, the more it seems like you know you, you dig and you dig, but you know it's not like you're introspecting or anything it's more like you're investigating as you go out and you investigate the world and you apply yourself and things work and some things don't um you know you you continue to discover deeper deeper values that sustain you and that make you want to do one thing over another and it just kept on coming back to me is that like it's just as you dig away at those all those layers of all the things that that you're that you know culture or society kind of you know brings you up with whether it's in the education system or early friends or, or you know just choices that you make that are kind of random you know you just continue digging and you continue to find new bits you know there's like an entire civilization down there sometimes it seems that you continue to uh to find as you do this kind of work there's um this is reminding me a little bit of a character on a tv show i've been watching called the wire a cop drama basically and there's a the main character is a very talented uh, de police detective who um who is a little bit uh, of a force of nature 
but every few episodes, uh, he he's you know with his uh, crew of uh, fellow uh, detectives, and uh, and he blurts out, "What the hell did I do?" Because he he lacks the insight to um, to realize how his behavior is is affecting other people and the politics of uh, of the of the larger police department that he's a part of. Um, so he, he's, he's very good at what he does in one hand, but he's always pissing other people off in contrast to some other people, uh, who are always very carefully navigating the system and saying the right things at the right times and, and actually, and actually getting the most kind of positive results. Um, so it's a, it, it's a, a funny balance, um, as, as, a, as displayed by, uh, the character Jimmy McNulty on the wire. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want to be that person who says, what the hell did I do? We, we don't want to be so clueless. Um, you know, with, with the time that's, uh, left to us in our lives, time is uh, speeding forward and hurtling forward so quickly. Um, you know, we, we want to be able to engage, uh, in, in growth and, and, um, making ourselves larger and and not seeming great or feeling great, but but actually to the greatest extent possible, being great by incorporating the points of view of of uh, the world of information, which includes the the perspective of the people the people that we're surrounded by, and coming to a synthesis uh, to the extent that that's possible um, with our own uh, understanding of of how we function and our own patterns and our own quirks and behaviors and proclivities and talents um so just to uh, just to say again this is a great book insight um and you know in some ways i feel like it's uh it's a kind of um a plain language uh you know self-authoring uh program filled with suggestions um and it's come along at the right time for me i'm i'm glad we discussed it today i hope I hope people take the opportunity to give it a try and, and really uh, put some effort into uh, some of its um, suggestions. And All one right. of the great things about it, I think, is, um, you know, she talks about earthquakes uh, and the various different alarm clocks. And, you know, you can, you know, wait for the universe or your life to have a billboard, you know, drop on your head and crush your life and <laughs> and just have, you know, have to try and put pieces together from absolute ruin and chaos, but um, it's possible, like with this book, with the tools that are in there, it's possible to be able to go ahead and be taking steps to um, create a better reality where uh, instead of, you know, blindly going and, you know, doing the things that you've always done that are pissing people off and, you know, not making things better for anybody, um, you you were creating a new reality where uh, you're building stronger relationships with other people and you're bit building a, a better life uh, and you know maybe it's in your work or whatever and that's just better for everybody mm -hmm. amen well if we could sum up everything in this book in one um one statement one what's the word motivational statement to sum it all up would be uh, make yourself great again by, uh, by engaging in these self-awareness exercises. So with that said, make yourself great again by uh, getting insight 
and uh, reading the book and putting it into practice. With that said, thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.